Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to Head of Performance at the Sports Surgery Clinic in Dublin, Ender King. Thanks for tuning in to episode 287 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So this episode with Ender was supposed to be a one-parter, but has ended up being into two parts. So the first part is around ACLs, and the second part is around hip and groin injuries, which will come out next week. So in this first part around ACLs, there's some unbelievable content from Ender, as always, hence the reason why I wanted to get him on. Uh, for a, for a catch up because we haven't spoke for a couple of years, um, so we go into the challenges around ACL rehab. We go around does ACL injury equal brain injury, and then we have a little look at the key areas to focus uh, in terms of uh, assessment and monitoring through power plyometrics, running mechanics, change direction, uh, agility, uh, and muscle strength development. So really, really interesting chat with Ender. I know he's been on his world tour recently, which has obviously come to an abrupt end due to the current uh, situation. But it was great to get a bit of a review on that tour and what he'd seen, and that fits into the first question, which was the challenges in ACL rehab. And that is very much um, evidence-based from what he's seen over in Australia and and on on his various visits into clubs. So a really interesting chat with Ender, which I'm sure you'll really, really enjoy. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Kitman Labs. So Kitman Labs partners with leading sports teams to help them consistently achieve the highest levels of performance by increasing the impact of their data. So over 200 teams across the globe rely on Kitman Labs performance intelligence platform to quantify the cost of performance and injury and receive the right insights at the right time. Through unique outcome-driven analytics and the most advanced athlete management system, teams can align their organizations around a shared view of what it takes to drive performance and health and move at the speed of sport to adjust and continuously improve. If you want to know more about Kitman Labs, head over to www.win.kitmanlabs.com forward slash impact. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by iMeasureU. So used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field. IMU Step from iMeasureU is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimize return to play for running based sports. So iMeasureU have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor Blue Trident, which includes ultra-high G capabilities to quantify high-impact steps such as cutting, landing and sprinting, longer battery life to collect data all day, real-time feedback to aid immediate interventions and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. I Measure You, now part of Vicon, works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, US Department of Defence and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. If you want to get to know more about I Measure You, head over to their website, imeasureyou.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at imeasureyou. So without further ado, over to the episode with Ender King. Thanks for tuning in to the Pace Performance Podcast. So this evening, I am delighted to welcome for a part two, uh, two to three years down the line, Ender King. So welcome to the podcast, mate. Thank you very much, Rob. Great to be involved. 
Thank you very much for coming on. So we are in weird times at the minute, as we've discussed. Uh, and this will, it's a bit weird, even more weird, because this will come out in a couple of weeks. So we may be in the same position. Things may have changed, who knows. Yeah. But in the last couple of years, um, would you be able to give us a bit of a, an update on what's happened? Anything happened? And then maybe go back before that in terms of background before um, sports surgery clinic, education-wise, and um, yeah, a bit of an update. Yeah, um, so t- time flies very quickly, unless, of course, you're in isolation on the week, and the week's, <laughs> the week's dragging on. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so I, I, I'm, I, I'm head of performance um, at the sports surgery clinic. Uh, I've been working at the clinic for almost 12 years now, on and off. Um, I did my undergrad at uh, Trinity College in, in here in city centre in Dublin. Um, I then went and did my MSc in... Curtin University uh, in Perth in Australia and um, great time there for a couple of years and then I finished my uh, PhD um, in Roehampton University uh, in 3D biomechanics after ACL reconstruction and so that's been the last couple of years along with kids and all that kind of stuff um, in terms of the, the clinic um, my roles um, primarily is around our residential rehabilitation program um, so that's at least coming to spend blocks of time with us, uh, in, in, including biomechanical analysis, for anywhere up from a week up to up to eight weeks. Um, we also have expanded our orthopedic services. Um, so we have athletes coming for orthopedic procedures, ACL reconstruction, meniscectomies, etc., and spending intensive blocks uh, staying in Dublin immediately post-surgical um, to try and really maximise um, that initial recovery prior to returning back to the clubs for their ongoing rehab. Um, I'm involved uh, with obviously quite an extensive research programme in, in the sports surgery clinic under um, our director of sports medicine, Andy Franklin Miller. We have um, just finished four PhDs and we have another five um, that are starting up or are up and running. Um, and so I'm primarily involved in our ACL and groin rehab programs uh, along with some uh, others around uh, high muscle hypertrophy, post-ACL and, and motor learning. And uh, my other role then is around, um, I suppose, the clinical consistency among all our staff. We've, we've quite a, a large and diverse team uh, of about 25 physiotherapists, 10 strength and conditioning coaches, uh, 10 in the biomechanics team and seven or eight sports medicine doctors. And so as the team expands, and our services expand and the technology we use and, and, our, and our understanding of it through, through academic research expands. Um, you, there's an expectation that you're going to get a continuity of service when you come to the clinic, uh, regardless of, of what injury you're coming from, coming with and, and, and who's, who's managing that injury. Um, and so we spend a lot of time trying to break down what, what are we doing, what variables are we using, and then how best are we intervening with those variables to, to get adaptation over time. Um, and so it's like, the, as we said, it's like the 80-20 rule, you know, 80% of what we're doing um, of, of every ACL should be fairly consistent. And then the 20% is the artistic bit that we learn to evolve and adapt and try new things and, 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 and share ideas. And that's, I suppose, it's a very rich environment from a, an academic point of view because you're constantly looking at clinical problems and then coming up with academic questions to try and, and, and really tease out what we're trying to do properly. Um, so it's a very, very, you know, it's, a, it's an outstanding learning environment, um, both in terms of the, the number of different people we have and input, the amount of different research that, that's ongoing, but 
I mean, all happening on athletes at the same time. So the, 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 although you're dealing with different injuries, the reasoning can be applied to shoulder, to concussion, to lower limb injuries, etc. Um, and so things are, are expanding nicely and, and uh, obviously a challenging time for everyone over these next couple of weeks. But the, the, the clinic as a whole has been going from strength to strength. Um, so you did some traveling recently, went back to Australia. I didn't realize you did some studies in Australia. So obviously there's a, there's a big link there. But what was the... Um... It's like a, a an Australian like uh, band on tour doing yeah. all your doing all your seminars and workshops and things. It was well, the, the primary purpose was some some sunshine and some vitamin D. But nice. um, no, I I had I have a number of contacts in Australia from from my time in Perth and friends and colleagues and and both and professional colleagues um, in in Melbourne and Sydney as well. So it was a great opportunity to to socially to catch up with a lot of people. Um, you always think, you know, I'll pop down to Australia every now and again, but it's hard to find the time professionally and family-wise. Um, and then I was very lucky. Uh, I, we've had um, professional dealings with, with a guy called Nick Kane, uh, who works in, in Eston Football Club, and he's part of a company called Sportsmap that run um, educational uh, courses, primarily focusing at, at, at elite and high-end rehab. Um, and so he 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 ran the show and and, and organised everything. So it was it was a great uh, opportunity to I suppose meet lots of of clinicians from clubs that um, we we've been working with uh, over distance for quite a while, um, and a great opportunity to come down and, and and share some of the research we're doing at the sports surgery clinic and the the challenges and problems that we're facing day to day and the solutions we're trying to come up with to to push uh, our understanding of of rehab and return to play forward. Nice, and it, I looked on the the sports map website, and it said this is obviously post um, post your visit, but it seemed to be it seemed to go well in terms of like tickets sold out and it yeah, well yeah, it's, it's, it's good, it's, it's great. Um, yeah, it, it was bumper ride to be honest, which I, I ran out of time. We could we could 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 have done more, but um, as as it turns out, it was good to get home in time, in time when, when when we did. But um, like um, there's huge continuity of of. Um, between Scandinavia, uh, UK, Ireland, and Australia, there's huge continuity from a, a clinical reasoning point of view, and from a strength and conditioning point of view, and a performance point of view. That you, we all are, are seem to be operating in the same pool from a CPD point of view. Um, so it was re- it was a real pleasure because they're, you know, the majority of the attendees were, were operating at a very high level, uh, coming in with great knowledge, and it's always great when you because you can really take the conversation up a level and let them drive with you know the, the areas that they want to have addressed and that. So it's it's. Like most things, those that are are giving these workshops, they end up learning as much, if not more, than those than those that are attending. So um, it was it was a hugely enjoyable visit, and I got plenty from it. Yeah, absolutely, you've set me up there really nicely because, given the given the exposure you've had to all these clinicians across Australia and the various um, and part of the club visits as well that come along with doing these kind of workshops, what are the challenges? And then this is super broad, but what are the the challenges and, and commonalities amongst them challenges? that you saw over there and you see over here as well when you're doing club visits. Yeah. And then we'll, we'll, we'll dive into a bit of depth off the, off the back of that. Yeah. It, it's, it's, I mean, there's, there's any, I mean, elite sport is full of challenges, but in terms of the clubs, number one is that I suppose when you see lots of something, so let's say you see lots of ACLs or lots of grinds, you think that everyone does, but everyone doesn't. Um, and so, you know, if you're if you're in a well-organized club, you might have one groin a year or every two years, something like that. And so, what 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 becomes very familiar 
to us that sees lots of them is that pattern recognition where things go wrong and how to steer things back again which often can be a challenge for clubs when they're only having maybe one ACL a year or even better again hopefully even more spread out than that um, so that can be a challenge um, the second thing is around the you know the facility for testing and you know a lot of clubs are expanding the testing they have available but obviously can't do full bells and whistles but even within that what the, the, the technology they do available having the time and the expertise to understand the data that they're collecting and um, understand when even though they're carrying out a, a valid and reliable test they might be doing it very reliably or you know they, 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 they haven't recalibrated their instrumentation to make sure that the results they're getting is accurate um, and number three then is really trying to find the time to do everything that they want to do um, and it, it's it's especially in the longer term rehabs, but also those that are, are, are a, like, let's say a defined pathway, like an ACL where, you, you know, you know what it is, but trying to find the time to make, have that amount of input every day that maybe you could have on one-on-one offsite or residentially or um, having the time to spend coaching their running mechanics and coaching their, their change direction mechanics um, in, in, a, in an injury that that's a shorter turnaround is also quite difficult and especially you take AFL as an example you know I mean the huge playing squads you know it could be up on you know 42 plus whatever other add-ons are coming through uh, and you get various I mean I have to say compared to a lot of sports they're extremely well organized medical teams uh, very experienced uh, and very much about their business but it's a little bit of the loaves and fishes there's only so much that can go around um, especially, I mean, they have a very long preseason. If you're unlucky enough to have a few niggles and maybe one or two long-term injuries, that creates a very, very busy list very, very quickly. Um, and so they struggle with, not they struggle with, the challenge is the guys, you know, that are difficult, you know, expanding the assessment and having the time to make as much progress as quickly as possible. But then also the guys that have just transitioned back with niggles like tendinopathies of Achilles, patella, groin pain, etc high hamstring having the time to continue to develop them in that four to six weeks after return to full training even though you know that there's still gaps in in where they are and and where you want to bring them Uh, and that i suppose having what i try to loop back to them is having those objective measures that a lot of times players are doing stuff and they're, they're rehabbing hard, whatever the hell that means. And they're, they're putting the time in and then you reassess them at the end of the week or at the end of two weeks. And physically, they don't look a whole pile different than they looked two weeks previously. And I'm not talking about, you know, particular measures that take time to develop. But let's say hip control, shoulder control, pelvic, whatever it is that you're focusing on, that they'll say, I've been doing that all week. I can't believe it's all, you know, it's, it's not better than it is. And then you watch them again and coach them to the exercise and think, oh, shit. I was, you know, I just wasn't getting that the way I needed to get it, and and away you go again. So, um, I think it's it, it's based off that of that, you know, so much of elite sport is just not patching up, but trying to get lads and girls ready to play every week in, week out, and there's a huge amount of stress and strain with that naturally. Uh, maybe not seeing a lot of something that someone else sees a lot of, because naturally or hopefully there's not too many of them in the club at any given point or any given season. And then number three is having the outcome measures to chart that progress week on week and then to challenge the player to continue to make progress, but maybe a little bit more independently over the following transition versus you're good, you're back and, and away you go. 
and and where does the time fit in the week to rescreen or reassess that athlete and then when you do that rescreen what do you do with that data and how do you feed it back in and, and how do those programs work together so it's you know i'm always in awe of those working uh in elite sport because it's it's i mean it's condescending to say it's a juggling act because they're incredibly well organized uh, um, setups but just the sheer volume of, of athletes that they have to look after um, and and the work regardless of whether that's elite soccer or american football or afl the, you know the size of the squads and the pressure they're under and and everything else it's it's a, it's a hugely challenging environment and they do a tremendous job um, off the back of that is there any commonalities in things that are like you say that, that when time is a of the essence and obviously people want to get it back as as quick as possible but with big split plane squads maybe potential growing injury lists is there certain things that get missed that are that commonly get missed across different codes across different sports that you would potentially put more emphasis on as opposed to other things that maybe are more standard i think you know, when you're when you're trying to turn Anthem around as quick as possible, you're looking for the greatest hits. And so much of the focus tends to be on pain propagation and uh, strengthening the damaged tissue, which obviously is essential. But either, either the time isn't available or the time isn't taken to expand the assessment or step back and say, well, look, why did we end up in trouble in the first place? And obviously it's multifactorial. I'm, I'm just going to stay talking about the movement side of things, but obviously load and conditioning and all that are, are hugely important and that's not to be dismissive of it, but it tends to be that every injury ends up being load injury and that, you know, the GPS numbers were off or the recovery was off and that's why they ended up in trouble now. And, you know, the, the load exposes the problem, but it doesn't always cause the problem. And so you're, you're, that is number one. And number two then is that obviously you need to have a certain uh, capacity within any tissue. Um, to absorb and transmit and, and transfer load. But even in, increasing the capacity of that tissue doesn't mean that it's not going to end up at a point of ongoing overload if you don't address the mechanics that go with it. And so it's it's time-consuming and challenging to create the portfolio of the assessment to say, have I looked at their motor control? Have I looked at their strength locally and globally have i looked at their power production have i looked at the eccentric as well as the concentric components have i looked at their plyometrics have i looked at their running and the change direction and the sport specific movements and so that takes time and it's not that it all needs to be done on the day of injury or the daily but over the journey are, are we are we transitioning and then as part of i suppose what i've been chatting with or working with clubs a lot of at, at the current time is well, if we know that this is what we're going to have to work at when they get injured or there's commonalities here, how many of these commonalities can we begin to, to drift forward with the, with our healthy group? And and, and what, what strategies can we begin to put in place that, you know, especially in one way, elite sport is incredibly time demanding, but actually in another way, there's lots of time to do stuff. And, and a, a lot of the time is stepping back and saying, well, why are you doing that? And in a week's time, how is that going to look different and in three weeks' time? How is that going to look different? And so if you have an academy player who's in your system in rugby or, or soccer or whatever else, I mean, they should look like a rock star after three years in the academy <laughs> uh, from your main compound lifts and how you how you front squat, your overhead work, et cetera, et cetera, through to the running mechanics, through to their rate of force development, through to the technical and tactical elements that obviously come in parallel with that. Um, and 
some athletes naturally fall into that. Some have excellent setups and they drift them in that direction. And then some, you know, they're getting better at their sport, but not necessarily developing athletically. And then season two, season three, ending up in trouble. And then they're kind of chasing their tail and then, and then you end up. So it's, it's interesting, you know, much of my caseload is obviously chronic injuries or, or injuries that are coming back from longer term rehab. But increasingly, you see older athletes who can see the, the investment in their career in taking that step back to say, well, look, am I topping up at the end of every season? Uh, am I getting a, an MOT, if that's what, I, what you say, to say where I'm going and how I need to progress along? Because um, it's having that time to step back and take a holistic view and push things forward. And the younger athletes don't necessarily see that, the, not they don't see the value of it, it just, it's not relevant to them. It's like when you're, you know, when you're not injured, who you know, no one cares. Mm-hmm. Um, but the more you can tie that back into their ability to, to get into good defense, positions defensively, their ability to reach their top end speed, to be more robust in the tackle, et cetera, et cetera, the more they can see the value of that, the more they'll look for that, they'll come looking for those areas of development as opposed to injury prevention, which no one cares about unless you're chronically injured. <laughs> um, and so much of what we're trying to do now is trying to say what systems can we put in place from an assessment point of view, but also from a, a curriculum point of view to take athletes through, knowing that there's no point in saying, you know, you've entered, you know, your, your, your pelvic tilt is a problem now, or your, you know what I mean? Your, your, your coordination of push off is an issue now when we saw it, you know, six months ago, but you had either built up the tissue capacity or you know other issues you just got, not that you got away with it. That's not the right word because what's perfect mechanics? No one has an idea. But, you know, there was room for, for making things more efficient and that's when, when ideally we, we would intervene. Um, so one thing, and it was, correct me if I'm wrong, but some of your guys, maybe you, I'm not quite sure, did some research looking at second ACLs. Yes. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we'll come on to that. And that's something that, again, probably from your, you guys who see these kind of issues reasonably regularly, from someone in a football club, rugby club, would maybe think that that's a, I don't know, a, you know, once in a, once in a, a career, maybe seeing a double ACL, you know, the same ACL again. But I'm guessing that's not the case. And if because you see probably more of the, of them, but what is the what is often the problem when that unfortunately occurs? Is there a lot of commonalities in that scenario as well? Yeah, I think it's it's. It's interesting that, you know, you're twice as likely to rupture your healthy limb as you are your operated limb. And so it, 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 it's, it's, you're more susceptible to a second ACL injury on the, on the one that wasn't injured the first time as you are, which is interesting because a lot of the time-based recovery, et cetera, is around letting that, that operated limb recover. And certainly our, our research uh, is, I suppose, if, if you look at, Part of the thing always is is who is susceptible to second injury and when am I ready to return to play? And uh, it's it's incredibly difficult to predict who will go on to re-injure because it's multifactorial. On the biggest level, there's genetic components to it. What you know from that point of view, there's the graft selection, uh, hamstring versus patellar tendon. There's obviously surgical technique in that in that side of things, and then there is their own physical ability to absorb and transfer load in, in, in movement specific to their sport. Um, uh, and there's very little physical correlation between return to, uh, relationship between how athletes look physically and return to play in that 
the biggest indicator for return to play is do you want to return? And so <laughs> they, they, they tend to transition back. Um, and so we, we tend to see, when you look at where the, the deficits are in ACLs, there's very consistent deficits um, between those that have had ACL recon and, and healthy athletes as, as a starting example. Um, in, in a couple of my PhD paper, we've talked about, um, first of all, in terms of, of jumping and landing, particularly in drop jumps, uh, athletes really struggle to get back their plyometric ability um, as, as assessed by a single leg drop jump. That seems to be the single quality that's slowest to recover. Um, and it's also probably one of the most important factors because what our data, we just recently submitted our data, is suggesting that that plyometric ability is probably one of the most important differentiators between those that go on to re-rupture or rupture their healthy limb and those that don't. So those that, that don't injure their healthy limb uh, are springier, more plyometric, whatever, whatever terminology you want to use, than those that don't. Um, and not asymmetrically more, more springy, just in general, they're less springy athletes, the ones that go on to have a second injury. And that's hugely important because when we, from a two points of view, number one is especially in plyometric exercises by their nature, um, target ankle stiffness in particular and, and, and the gastro Achilles junction. And so that control of ankle dorsiflexion has a big influence on the control of tibial translation and as a result has a big influence on the control of anterior tibial translation, uh, sorry, anterior tibial shear and ACL load. And so whether it's because of the female ACL research or uh, the, the mechanism of videos, we see a lot of the emphasis put around knee valgus. And knee valgus is important, but it, it's that anterior tibial translation that is the primary loader of the ACL that's going to influence then whether these secondary movements of valgus rotation, etc., end up with pop goes the weasel. Um, and so we're seeing consistently that athletes post-ACL recon are struggling to get back that plyometric ability both on the operate side and then bringing both sides forward. Um, and then secondly is despite the fact that there's, there's lots of, of uh, you know, lateral hip strength and glute strength and frontal plane control, we still see persistent deficits in the frontal plane um, either because athletes are insufficiently strong enough in the lateral hip um, mainly through a lack of, of progressive overload in that you'll see a, a rugby player six foot four you know 100 kilos and you'll see a, a hockey player 74 kilos and they're both on one black miniband and you're thinking <laughs> they're and not only are they both on one black miniband they're on it for about six months so like we, we progress the load of our squats we progress the load of our deadlifts yet where is the progressive overload in our lateral hip work, it's, it's focused very much on control and can I do step downs and not let my knee fall in. But if you're looking to strengthen, where's that intensity of force coming from in the frontal plane? Uh, and it's amazing how many athletes get their quads back, get their hamstrings back, and then have ongoing lateral hip deficits, despite the fact that you could probably start your lateral hip strength work in the operative bed immediately post-surgery. So, I mean, it, it, it's, it's probably the one quality that we could can begin with uh, as early as possible. And same with foot control. Um, you know, our foot is the first thing that's going to interact with the ground and give us our stable base to, to influence further up along the kinetic chain. And foot control tends to get, neglected might be the strong word, but um, it doesn't get the same attention um, because people go for the big hits. It's an ACL and therefore it's going to need X, Y, and Z as opposed to here's where this athlete is at now. 
where do I want them to look in a month's time? Where them because I don't know what you know the graph they have selected is going to influence their deficits. Their previous injury history is going to influence their deficits. Their adaptability and their genetics is going to influence their deficits. And so on a month by month by month, one of the biggest challenges here is not when am I ready to return to play, but what does a rehabbed, a fully rehabbed ACL look like? And can I write that down the day before surgery? And if I can't write it down before surgery, how can I decide what I need to do next week? And how can I decide how that fits within the next month's program? And how do I know if I'm trending in the right direction? And time and again, you see where we get to. And, and how can I create confidence in the athlete if you know three or four of us in the medical team sit down to write down what a rehabilitated ACL looks like and we can't even agree among us what, what those variables are? Uh, and or, or may not have the access to the technology we need to measure those things accurately and so you know people work hard a lot of stuff is done and then you come to the moment of truth or where you feel the moment of truth is and they're they're a good bit away from where they want to go and so you, you know clubs will contact us about about reviews and uh, prior to return to play and say when's a good time to come the best time to come is as early as possible so you want to set that expectation with the player as early as possible rather than sort of saying, and you have it every now and again, you know, I hope to go back training next week. And again, right, well, how do I dress this up that maybe, you know, that, that may not be the best short-term um, interest for you. Um, so it's it's trying to identify, and, and it, like it's no, there's no such thing as the end of rehab. It's just I've put you physically back to where you are, if not better than when you started. And everything we do after this is profit. It's just further athletic development. And return to play will probably have happened before you achieve that because there'll be elements to do with your conditioning levels and your sport-specific skill that will only come naturally by by having returned to that to that uh, sport-specific sport environment. But my, my profile of my athlete in terms of my motor control, my strength, my power, my plyometrics, my running and change direction mechanics, can I write down what I'd like them to look like the first day I meet them after surgery? And if I can't write that down now, how can I put the pieces of the jigsaw together that I'm not going running to? Like one of the biggest issues uh, clubs report is not about re-injury, but it's the fact that they always seem to, athletes regularly get sore when they go back running. And that pain and, 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 and swelling is a bigger issue. It's probably a far bigger issue in elite athletes than it is second injury um, because it's time to go running you know what the hell does that mean and and so what 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 physical competency and technical competency do you want in order to be able to go back running and be confident because you know running doesn't make you very good at running it makes you conditioned to run but from a technical point of view it doesn't necessarily have a huge uh, influence on uh, from a motor learning point of view and so what are the areas that you're drilling as early as possible because the first thing an athlete will always ask you is when can I return to play and the second thing they'll always ask you is when can I start running and so if you're saying well, look we're starting running drills uh, you know three weeks post-surgery three weeks post-surgery yeah we'll do some wall posture holes we'll work on your ankling we're, we're you know we're we're running long before we ever put on our boots to go out on the field so we have that base in we're making sure that by the time it's to go running I've already been drilling the hell out of it for a number of weeks beforehand and that goes back to what we're saying about some of the time challenges if I only have X amount of contact time with a player you know the number one priority here is going to be strength they're going to have strength deficits we know athletes from a strength point of view really struggle in two buckets number one is they struggle to get the mass back 
So even though the peak torque comes back, the mass doesn't. And so when they detrain, very often you'll see an athlete will, will detrain or have a break or, or, or uh, reduce their strength road. Next thing, even though they'd achieve symmetry of peak torque beforehand, because they haven't got the muscle mass, they drop down um, when, they're, when their training intensity drops down or their strength work drops down, or they struggle to get that heavy neural drive back, that, that max intensity back as well. And so it's, that, that has to be priority number one. Um, but it's find the time that when that's up and running, how can I begin to be preparing myself for these other landmarks that are coming very, very quickly down the train tracks? Like, you know, it's amazing once you, the biggest challenge athletes have is getting to the surgery day because there's the, there's the mental element of it, there's the emotional element of it, there's trying to get them to be proactive and, and lose as little as possible. And um, so if, if we think that strength is going to be one of our big deficits. Well, we want to lose as little as possible before. Warren Buffett has that, you know, the best way of making money is not to lose money. Uh, so <laughs> the, the best way of, 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 of ending up with sufficient muscle mass and quadriceps strength is to lose as little as possible before surgery. Um, but once they have their surgery, it's bang, 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 bang. And, and the weeks go by so bloody quick. And it's really a challenge for us to make sure that every week we're optimizing and, 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 uh, did we make as much profit as possible every single week or have I done three or four weeks of stuff and has things trended in the direction they should have or look at I don't look a whole pile different um, because every athlete's massively enthusiastic in those first couple of weeks and then you get into the humdrum of it and, and, and the challenge of you know developing strength is it's, it's time consuming and it's laborious and, and it requires a huge amount of of effort not only in the gym but effort outside the gym to make sure my nutrition and my recovery is appropriate that every day i'm coming in to build muscle I'm, I'm 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 bouncing on the ground and i'm really ready to go and that's not easy to do if you're not of a mindset of i know what my number one priority is this week so um they're they're the i suppose the main challenges are i've sort of gone around in a big loop here but no it's fine it's really good thank you yeah around second injury is that if we, if we put these athletes back to normal, whatever the hell normal is, but normal is for them and then look to shift the boat forward, that's going to look after return to play, no problem. That's going to look after um, pain and swelling and the fact that I'm having to skip every third or fourth session or I came back to like you know, I got back to play at seven months, but then I had to take six weeks off because my knee was swollen. swollen. Um, and that will give them, again, when you're playing level one sports or sports involve pivoting and change direction, there's inherent risk to your knee that's just part of 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 of, of sport and um, but have we normalized that risk uh, as much as possible and um, and what we see is they struggle for strength they struggle for frontal plane control and most in particular they struggle for that plyometric ability um, and that that plyometric when we rupture our acl or when they rupture their acl thankfully i haven't yet um you know it happens in the first 40 milliseconds so that's not enough time to send a message down to say, you know, push my knee this way. That way, it's not even enough time for spinal reflex. So the the the, the better my level of, 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 if you want to call it stiffness or contraction or plyometric ability or whatever you want to call it, the more co-activation I have before I hit the ground, the most better chance I have of dissipating the load, the ground reaction force that's coming towards me, regardless of what direction it's coming from. Um, and so it's, it's a key point that, uh, I wouldn't say it gets under-addressed, but it, it, from a metric point of view, it tends to remain resistant or hesitant. It's always one of the last ones to come back. And also, 
there there can be a huge focus on the numbers so my 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 drop jump height is this or my reactive strength is this and they're hugely important metrics don't get me wrong but not the same attention on how did i produce those numbers and so i might have a very short contact time i might have a, you know a very very good jump height to come with that but i might have this massive tibial acceleration and buckling at the knee because i'm trying to i don't have the achilles stiffness to adapt so i'm going to go just come up the chain and tap into my patellar tendon stiffness uh, and, and the rest of the kinetic chain and so there's you're always balancing out the numbers i'm producing with the way i'm producing those numbers so change direction would be another good example and um, i can look at my change direction mechanics and change direction time is a very poor reflection of recovery of sorry, recovery of change direction time symmetry is a poor reflection of biomechanical recovery. So if you're doing a um, 505 or you're doing a 93 cut or whatever it is, very often your time performance will have recovered or gone back to symmetry long ahead of the way that you execute that task. And, and, And so the more open the tasks are, so obviously change direction is a more open task than, than drop jumps, for example. The more that you will execute the task, but many of the, the legacy movement patterns that were there either before injury or have, have developed or evolved post-injury um, will remain. And therefore, again, if we're relying on the number to tell us how we're doing, obviously if the numbers are way off, that tells us loads. But just because the numbers have gone back to good, whatever good is, you know, Lots of very, very fast athletes rupture their ACL. So just because I have good top-end speed, it doesn't tell me what my running mechanics are. Or just because I have good 505 or whatever metric you're using for your, your change direction, it doesn't mean that I'm not retaining those you know, at-risk postures. That I mean, there's no one movement that causes an ACL injury or groin injury either for that matter. It's a combination of, of positions foot, hip, knee, ankle, central mass relative to stance leg that put me in the at-risk position. And even then, there's lots of people in the at-risk position who never end up in trouble. But from a rehab point of view, we're trying to build in room for error. And so, you know, obviously I need to be able to execute a task at, at sufficient speed, but there should be this very nice overlap between mechanical efficiency and injury risk. And, you know, the most efficient way to change direction um, whether that's a planned or unplanned change direction, should also probably be the way it's going to protect your knee uh, the most at the same time. And so from very early on, when we're coaching athletes, we're trying to uh, really hammer in home the performance benefits, which they are very, I mean, athletes are are very quick to pick up what's efficient and what's not. Um, And so we're very quick to try and reinforce, can you see the room for development for here going forward? Because if we book it as, ACL prevention stuff, no one really gives a shit. But <laughs> if we can show the 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 offensive and defensive and positional uh, advantages to them by continuing to work on their competence here, they'll come to you looking for progressions. And that's and that's when you're winning. And they'll buy into the fact that, okay, my numbers are good, but I can see it, it's made one of the big things about the, the biomechanics has been how useful it's been as an educational tool. So, you know, you talk to any player about valgus and ankle stiff and whatever else just feel this gentle breeze going over their head and it's all all irrelevant. But when you play the clips in front of them, um, it's amazing how quickly they can pick up on where the deficits are and where the inefficiencies are and they're coming telling you um, how they want to progress forward. So once they're coming to you telling you, well, I'm good enough, I'm not good enough, rather than looking to you for the answer, 
um, that's a very powerful position to be in. So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Ender. Hope you enjoyed part one. So over in part two, we discuss more around the assessments and the monitoring when it comes to ACL injury, whether that be during ACL rehabilitation or beforehand in uh, in identifying players at risk. So we discuss muscle and strength development, power, plyometrics, running mechanics, um, change direction, etc., etc., and dive into some of the great work they're doing at the sports surgery clinic to uh, to give some context around what them guys are doing. So a really interesting part two coming up after an incredible, in my opinion, part one. But just before we do dive into part two, I want to say a big thanks to Hawking Dynamics for sponsoring this episode today. So Hawking Dynamics are the world leader in innovative force plate technology. Hawking takes a user-centric approach featuring a fully customized cloud-based software that allows users to easily digest and analyze complex force plate data. So the technology is constantly evolving, much like an app on anyone's iPhone or Android. They communicate with users on a daily basis to make their system better and better. So in addition to all that, they also offer the most competitive price for bilateral force plates on the market. And they're the only force plate company offering a completely wireless system, which is obviously a huge bonus. So in April 2020, Hawking Dynamics are hosting an educational event in St. Louis, Missouri at the prestigious Maryville University. So this event is definitely not one to miss. So it's a full two-day experience headlined by speakers like Dr. Jason Lake, who's been on the podcast before from Chichester University, Eric Renahan, who is the head of sports performance for the St. Louis Blues, Daniel Hicker, who's head of sports performance for the San Jose Earthquakes, and Lauren Green from the University of California and their sports performance analyst. So these are the leaders of force plate research and technology. So to learn more about this event, head over to the Hawking Dynamics website, which is hawkingdynamics.com. And also sponsoring this episode today is Black Box Fitness. So Black Box Fitness are a sports performance equipment manufacturer based in Belfast in Northern Ireland. So if you are looking for a full gym fit out, if you're lucky enough to be looking for a full gym fit out or just want to add additional pieces to what you've already got, whether that be barbells, dumbbells, plates, maybe a new rack, some flooring, etc., etc., have a little look at what Black Box Fitness can offer. So you can head to their website, which is blkboxfitness.com, or for a more informal view of what they do, head over to their Instagram because they've got some really cool images of some of the recent projects that they've run in Australia, in the UK, in Europe, etc. So head over to their Instagram, which is at blkboxfitness, and they're the same on Twitter. So there's loads that I want to ask you there. I've got tons of notes based on what you just said. So plyometric recovery or the recovery of plyometric qualities been such an important point for mitigating re-injury and obviously moving forward um, with, with performance. Is there anything we can do throughout or as early as possible or throughout the, the, the return to performance process that can help speed that up? Yeah, I think because the knee is sensitive by nature during those transitions back, um, plyometrics often get left later than they need to. Not that they should, but later than they need to. And so 
plyometrics by their nature field athletes are generally quite poor plyometrically when you compare them to their track and field counterparts and yet very often when we're looking at the transitions to plyometric exercises they go into track and field type depth jumps and drop jumps and bounding which is you know you know the the far side of the moon for most field-based athletes and so it's a great opportunity you know you're coming off crutches you're maybe two or three weeks post-surgery to start work on your ankle mechanics and your dissociation you can start on that incredibly early you can start working on very very low level plyos uh, ankling drills and pogos really really early working on that ability to actively plantar flex and dorsiflex but especially trying to maintain as extended knee as possible not that you need to or want to do them on extended knee but it really isolates that ankle stiffness um, and that's something that we can work on incredibly early and is often neglected in favor of is sort of neglected that window of opportunity when there's time to do it is neglected and then when it comes to transitioning to the you know, I'm back up and running and, and et cetera, et cetera. You really want to start your plyos before you start running because running is alternate like plyos. It's, it's going from one to the other. And so if I can't, one of my transitions to running would be, can I do single leg pogos with good technical form? And if I can't, well, in theory, running and running volume is going to be harder on the knee slash the joint than being able to do single leg pogos. And so beginning that as early as possible, that's one of those quick years we're talking about a bit. We're going to start running as quickly as possible. You know, this is something that's in the bank. And then the second thing is that the the intensity of the exercise relative to the technical competency tends to have a mismatch. And so athletes can't single leg pogo, but are doing depth jumps and bounds. And so, you know, there's there's big heel contact. There, there's a general awareness of ground contact time. So people are, are looking for the short ground contact time, but not coaching the athlete that's in front of them, not coaching that that focus on the on the Achilles, or sorry, on, on not letting the heel hit the ground, not focusing on the technical competence of the exercise. And so when you, you know, when you ask an, an athlete, any field athlete, let's say rugby, uh, AFL, um, soccer, when you ask them to do a single leg tuck jump, a single leg tuck jump is a difficult exercise, it's an intense exercise. But that, you know, drop jumps come after that. Uh, so most of them don't, and you, you watch them doing bound forward, and the ground contact's too long, and there's big posterior ground reaction force, and they're getting anterior knee pain, and they're not getting any more plyometric or any more you know, springy stiffers, whatever you want to call it, for the effort they're putting in. So again, it goes back to one of those things of, of doing stuff, but not getting the adaptation. So it's not that I need to do more of it or I'm not doing enough of it, but... A, am I starting it early enough? And then B, is what I'm doing making that athlete look different in two, three, six weeks' time? And so, and then what often happens is they go back, you know, the priority shifts. So going back to say, what's the most important thing? Well, my priority is to get fit, my priority is to get my running volume back. Because I'm not good at my plyos, my knee starts to get a bit sore. I don't do plyos because my knee is sore. And round we go. And round we go, and round we go. And next thing, I'm tweaking a soleus, and I'm tweaking a gastrop because you know the, the the contractile elements are trying to compensate, and my running volume goes up. And next thing, pinging little calf, and you watch them, and they've completely lost that that lower shank stiffness and that that, that ankle stiffness. When I say completely lost, it's not at the level at, at where it needs to be. So, um, I think going back to that, you know, beginning with the end in mind. Can I write down at the beginning what I want that athlete to look like at the end of rehab? 
what I want to look like to go back to training in, in a sort of unrestricted environment, what I want to look like when I go back running. And so every day I'm, I'm, the player is coming and telling me that they're not ready to run yet as opposed to asking me am I ready to run because they're sick of me saying every single week, see this hip lock drill, see this plyo drill, see this... If you, when you have this, we can go running. If you have it after three weeks, we're going running after three weeks. You're not going to have it after three weeks. But <laughs> that, it, it, it puts the owners of responsibility on to them that when you're being incredibly you know, meticulous and anal about the technique of things, they understand why. And when we're being to transitions, they understand why. And obviously the periodization of those exercises from a, a volume or an intensity point of view is very important. But what I tend to see is I, I don't see enough attention to the technical competency of whatever level of exercise you're, 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 you're prescribing. And so there is this, you know, not preoccupancy, but the attention goes towards number of contacts in a week, how it plans in, et cetera, et cetera, all of which is incredibly important, but it's underpinned by is what you're doing making any difference and is the way that you're doing it making any difference. And so go back to our challenges in a club environment. No, challenge number one is what should I be looking at? What's important? Number two is how the hell do I measure it? And number three is, and what I find in my practice and, and is that is what I'm doing changing stuff. Is it, are those metrics either th- th- that top number of, of, of RSI or, or explosiveness or eccentric? Is that number changing? And in the, is the way that you're executing that movement changing and evolving over time? Or am I just doing stuff? And so a lot of ACL literature is just, you know, the athletes need to have longer, you know, it, it, you know, rehab should be dragged out. But give me an extra four months rehab. It doesn't mean I'm going to be any further on or exactly where I want to be four months further down the line. It allows for more biological healing, absolutely. But, you know, we've, we've a paper recently in the American Journal of Sports Medicine just on, on a, on a two-year uh, registry follow-up of, of, uh, from our, our ACL surgeons, in particular, our director of medicine, Ray Morn. Um, and, I mean, he has a massive practice, you know, 700 ACLs per year. And in, in, in that data, time from surgery doesn't influence re-injury. There's no relationship between those who return between 6 and 9, 9 and 12, and 12 and 15 months. So if, the, if that doesn't matter or after six months, it seems to matter less, what is it that matters? And does give me more time, you'll see in all the research, whether that's change direction, running, strength and power, that you have these deficits, you know, lasting for up to two years. Well, two years is the longest bloody preseason anyone's ever going to have. And so... <laughs> It's interesting when you go back talking about doing the workshops, the first thing you say is, you know, right, who, who's an ACL here? It'll be just a sheepish hand to go up and because they know invariably they're going to be picked out for the next two days. <laughs> but, um, you know, the number of, and a lot of these are, are very, very good athletes uh, that, that are now working in, in medical teams, but the number of persistent deficits, two, three, four, five years post-surgery in trainable qualities, stuff that can be targeted, trained and put back to normal or better than normal, whatever the hell normal is. Um, and is it because we stopped halfway up the mountain or is it because what we're doing no longer gets an adaptation or have I just let it regress and roll back? And so um, th- there, th- that is an ongoing challenge that is what we're doing, especially in the plyometric exercises, is the way I'm executing it getting the adaptation we're looking for and then do I change my volume and then do I change my intensity and very often it's it's get the technical competency right use volume to get your adaptation to start off and especially when the knee is sensitive and then worry about ramping up but if I could get every athlete to do a single leg tuck, tuck jump that's a very good level of plyometric ability 
I can always go better. And if I'm tracking field athletes, of course, I'm going to have to go higher than that. But, you know, triple bounds, whatever else, I mean, they're just so far away from the physical competency. And even you see, you know, you go on YouTube and they're doing hurdle hops and et cetera, et cetera. But big long ground contact times, big massive heel strike, big tibial acceleration and and, and what to show for the effort that you've put in. Um, so it, it's, it's like it's like your pet hates. You know, your pet hate is when people talk about how power lifters lift and then try and bring it back to field athletes and, and trying to join the bit. When you look at track and field athletes and that, you know, they're incredible level. But I mean that's a that's a lifetime worth of athletic development, especially in your in your sprinters and their and their technical competency and, and their genetics, which have allowed them to be sprinters in the first place. And then you're trying to apply those drills to athletes where that's just not what their greatest gift is currently, especially post post some serious injuries like ACL. Mm-hmm. So you, you, you made a comment about the lateral hip strength and people sharing black minibands. Um, on that side of things, is there any recommendations that you would give where that is that is appropriate? Obviously not to share the minibands, but to be on that um, stage of where that is appropriate, but then being able to progress from there and actually get through the rehab so we're not going to measure and... Yeah. And, and, and like we're going to chat in about in a minute about the measurements, but not get to the end and go, that's lacking. Yeah. How can we build that up throughout? Yeah, I think the, the two biggest things are, just from a clinical point of view, is you're always asking yourself, where is your progressive overload coming from? So in, in each of your qualities and in each of the muscle groups you're targeting, so that might be isolated quad strength, it might be your, your compound strength, it might be your power, it might be your plyo. But let's say lateral hip strength. Where is the intensity increasing over time? Um, whether that's you know, your band work, your lateral sled work, whatever it is. Is it, am I stuck on the one level or am I progressing over time? And number two is, does it constantly feel harder on my weaker side? So if you're reviewing athletes, they'll know in any test, but that's a lateral hip strength, um, which is the weaker side. But very often they'll tell you when they're doing the mini band work or crab walk, etc they'll tell you that I'm getting a fantastic burn, but I'm getting it on both sides. Or worse again, I'm getting it more on my stronger side. So how, if I'm constantly compensating um, on my stronger side, how am I going to close that gap? And, and am I progressing the exercise that I'm doing the same exercise for four months or six months or whatever else? Or there's nothing wrong with doing the same exercise, but where is the change in intensity coming within that exercise? One mini band, two mini band, three. Who was the last athlete you saw with three mini bands? yet they will front squat 120 kilos, 130 kilos. So it's, where is that? And the beautiful thing is there's no good and bad exercises. There's what I feel I need to change and there's whether that exercise and the way I coach that exercise and the way I periodize that exercise is getting an adaptation over time. And so you're caught between two buckets. Number one is maybe not seeing some of the things that need to be done or number two from an assessment or rehab point of view or number two is... I know what needs to be done. I'm picking the right stuff, but either the way I'm coaching it, they're cheating, or I'm not progressing it over time to get that that ongoing uh, adaptation. And, and that's that's the big challenge in, in the latter lip work, uh, especially. And the last thing based on that um, great bit of um, content that you gave there was the foot control. Yeah. So is that something that you feel from your from your visits that gets completely neglected or is it something that 
is done poorly? And is there any recommendations that you can give to to improve that for people? Yeah, it's it's. And why is it so important? It's you? it's it's not that it's neglected, but it's it's the it's the small it's the run to the litter. It, you know, it, it gets the least attention. It gets the least attention for probably three reasons. Number one is there's, there's big fish to fry, you know, absolutely, uh, in terms of, of, of strength and power, etc. Number two is that it, you know, foot control exercise can be tedious at the best of times. Mm. Um, um, but uh, when I look back at, at how our exercise prescription has evolved and the coaching evolved, there's just so much money to be made there. There's just, you know, it, it, it really allows you, you have all this, you know, you've this big diesel engine, you've all this force capacity and you're losing both in your ankle stiffness as we talked about in the plyometric, but in your foot control, you're losing so much energy and so much ability to propel yourself forward or decelerate yourself. Um, and number three is there is a, a, there is a misunderstanding sometimes between a structural issue in the foot that requires some sort of orthotic support versus a motor control or a capacity issue at the foot, at which point I'm just going to stick something in there to try and compensate for it. And what, what, what often what you see is you'll do a static assessment or, or you, you, you know, have someone wear an orthotic, but when you watch them execute the exercise, they still continue to collapse because you know, rarely is their foot exactly flat on the ground, especially on toe off and running and stuff like that. So you'll end up seeing this midfoot collapse even though the orthotic device is in because that is a control issue. It's not a structural issue. And so very often I had one this morning, especially in, in sports where they're prone to, to ankle sprains. So you look at basketball, you look at uh, uh, soccer or football in particular, and you know, ankle dorsiflexion ring gets the blame for everything and pronation gets the blame for everything. And the way around that then is to stick something in when a lot of the time that, that loss of dorsiflexion range is to do with uh, muscular restriction uh, due, due to control deficits or strength deficits, but especially around the midfoot. Um, and those athletes that change direction with their foot externally rotated, uh, they're doing that to try and get their big toe down to the ground or they're doing that because of compensations in the lateral hip. And so sticking something under my foot doesn't address the reason that they're, they're, they're choosing. And so we know that if you change direction, with your foot more externally rotated, it's going to take less valgus motion before I begin to hit my MCL and before I begin to strain the medial joint and by extension the ACL. And so the foot control is just, it's just this incredibly important foundation block on which you can build everything else. And going back to the lateral hip strength, it's something I can start five minutes after surgery, in theory, you can't. But if you, it's, you know, there they're one of my big things when we're going through workshops or clubs is there's no excuse for having lateral hip weakness and foot control deficits post ACL. We have months, we have months of warm-ups, we have months of upper body work that I can substitute in my, my control control. There's months and months and months of time to get this stuff right. But A, am I assessing it to see it needs to be done? And B, am I selecting and coaching exercises that are going to get changes in it over time and it's one of those things where if you're making little deposits on a weekly basis, you get phenomenal carryover over an extended period of time. Um, and so it's when I look at, at how my practice has evolved over time, there's always the, you know, the weakest link in everyone's practice and, and how things push on. But you know, did I always give foot control as much attention as I gave you know, uh, 
hip control and strength and power development. I probably didn't. Um, did they do fine? They probably did. Could they have done better? Of course they could have. And so again, it goes back to if our goal is to get from A to Z as quickly as possible, the broader my assessment, the more I'm going to see what needs to be addressed. And the more, it's not that I have to have my strength before I start my running, it's strength is the base on which it allows me to express running. Uh, and so they're the physical quality. So the better my foot control, the better my plyometric, the more easy it's going to be to get adaptations in my running mechanics and my change direction mechanics. Mm-hmm. Absolutely superb. Thank you. Um, so one thing that you mentioned on the correspondence that we had beforehand with regards to discussion points was does ACL injury equal brain injury? And I'd like to explore that. So what what made you what why do you think that's so important a discussion point to, to chat through? And do you think that ACL injury equals brain injury? Yeah, it's it's I suppose it's it's a complex area and one that's very difficult to assess from an academic point of view and therefore it's very difficult to explore. Um, one of our, our, our PhD students, um, uh, Tilana, is looking at this area post-ACL rehab and the, the use of, of visual strategies to compensate for, for, you know, for visual dependency to compensate for, for motor de- deficiencies post-ACL injury. Um, but like we know that afferent implant is immediately hit post-ACL. You have a rupture of the ACL and the loss of, of proprioceptive feedback from that ligament. You have a huge amount of pain and swelling that occurs within the joint and changes the, the, the feedback coming from the knee joint. You generally have compensation pain uh, and compensation movement strategies that are going to influence those neural pathways, um, both spinal and supraspinal immediately so you're going to have a, a transition of um, reduced motor drive increase uh, activity in in the motor cortex and changes from your what has been very autonomous movement strategies to one that are a b I suppose, a, more visually dependent um, as a compensation for that loss of proprioception from the knee uh, and also b ones that are, are much more planned movements like when you're learning a new skill and it's very rigid uh, because it's, it's very uh, you know there's a huge amount of cognitive input to what we're doing that 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 autonomic automatic movement strategies begins to get greatly influenced and so when you say brain injury that that you know influences that uh, sorry insinuates that there's some kind of damage to the brain which there isn't mm. but are there changes at a local level, at a spinal level, and a superspinal, there, there definitely are. And uh, one of our co-supervisors, Dusty Grooms, has done a, a huge amount of, of work in this area. But again, it's very, you know, it's difficult to draw lines between biomechanics and ACL injury, uh, given the numbers that are needed. But it's an easier method, measure of metrics rather than looking at brain uh, function post ACL and how that. So it's an area of ongoing uh, adaptation and, and 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 focus going forward. But it's often an area that's neglected in in rehab from you know how we how we set up our our rehabilitation sessions to uh, influence that visual dependency. How we can progress our rehab through to very very heavy lifting to influence that increased motor drive back down to the tissues not only motor drive from the brain but also our ability to recruit all the muscle fibers that our center activation ratio how we can recruit all the muscle mass that we have and and how we can 
structure are, especially those transitions from the from the gym based exercises through to the field based exercises, how we can uh, structure and constrain our drills to get as much motor learning and as much carryover as possible within those sessions versus I do my lovely jumping and landing and running drills in the gym and then straight out into the chaos. And you know what we the strategies we can use to hide and to bluff and to compensate within the gym during planned environments are no longer available to us when we have to contend with most you know multiple data input trying to observe where the ball is coming from who's going to attack me and where I'm going to go all those protective strategies or, or motor strategies are going to be you know compensated or, or challenged beyond what my level of compensation is and so it's a huge opportunity to create a more robust athlete over and above the simple metrics of strength and power and and and, and plyometric ability but then again if I you know it's one thing the brain having the signal coming down. If I don't have those base physical qualities, you know, it, it, it's trying to again. Am I expanding my my profile of that athlete to make sure that all of these metrics are trending and all of these assessments are trending in the right direction on a weekly or a fortnightly or a monthly basis? Mm-hmm. So the, the the thread of assessments and being objective is 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 evident throughout what we've what you've discussed. So that brings me on to the one of the last points that we'll have a chat around, and that is the assessments themselves. What what are you assessing, and at what points throughout the return to play, potential performance process, are they actually been plugged in? Yeah, um, I suppose you're you're looking to again to be repetitive. You're looking to say, what do I want my last assessment to look like, and. What do I want it to look like from a conditioning point of view, from a technical competence point of view of whatever your given sport is, from a running and change direction point of view, from a power and plyometric point of view, and from a, a global strength and a local strength point of view and motor control. So that's what I want my last assessment to, to look like. Um, and so my first assessment is going to be what can I tolerate at this given point in time, knowing that as I reach these landmarks and as I continue to progress through my rehab curriculum, I'm bringing in new elements all the time. So simple thing is what's my gait pattern and what's my knee range of motion. And that progresses on to what are my compound movements look like? Am I looking squat or DL, et cetera, et cetera. At around, you know, probably from the 12 week mark on, just purely from a tissue healing point of view, can I begin to get metrics specific to where we know there'll be deficits. So for, we know that a, a patellar tendon graft and a quadricep graft is going to have more quads weakness. We know that a hamstring graft is going to have more hamstring weakness, in particular in inner range knee flexion. So can I begin to measure that as early as possible? Not to see are they good or not, because they're not going to be good enough at that point, but to begin to draw their attention towards it and to show them that, again, uh, energy goes where, where you know where, where your focus is and so can you see that this is where we are now this is what's realistic to achieve in the next four week block this is what's need realistic and then once we achieve a decent level of competency i'm going to continue to reassess it but my my pie chart of how i'm going to divvy up your rehab week or your performance week is going to evolve all the time as those landmarks are reached and those metrics so you know one of the big things is What's the number one, regardless of what week you are, what's the number one thing stopping you going back playing rugby or soccer today? Uh, my quadriceps strength, right. The first thing that's going to go into our program is going to be, is it going to take priority over it? What's the number two thing? My hip strength, okay. No, what's my number three? Right, my landing competency. And you can, you can have lots of stuff in your program week to week, month to month. 
but does your athlete know what the three most important things are and do they know the test that's going to show whether they've had, and everything else is lovely but everything else is cream what are the three that we're going to judge you the athlete and me the one responsible for your rehab on and so as you go through your strength then can I have a look at my plyos as I go into my plyos can I have a look at my running as I go to look at my running what's my rate of force development like especially from an eccentric point of view we're, we're very good at measuring what goes up but most of the struggle is in slowing down um, and with some research uh, recently come out of the clinic looking at how you know concentric strength improves between six and nine months concentric impulse asymmetries improve between six and nine months uh, and yet the eccentric deficits remain persistent and is that that I'm not rehabbing or going back to the specificity of training? Is it because I'm not putting as much attention to detail on targeting the, the, the ability to absorb high levels of force as I am the ability to produce high levels of force? And so you commonly see <clears throat> in, 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 in all rehab, in ACL rehab, much of our, our landing mechanics is focused on the motor control. You know, can I land without my knee collapsing in or can I land in a certain form? But that's fine, but that, that's quite low intensity. That needs to be done, don't get me wrong, but that's low level. In parallel, where is my stream where I'm absorbing very high levels of force, but in a less complex movement? So I'm doing my landing, my eyes closed, hopping hurdles with a twist, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then in parallel, where am I absorbing you know, really, really heavy loads, whether that's with a trap bar or, or whatever else, where am I focusing and separating out? Because very often... The ability to jump will continue to improve, but the ability to land or the ability to absorb high levels of force remains stagnant. And so if all you do is jumping training and hoping that that will work on my jumping and my landing, maybe I need to split them out a little bit and say, right, here's my assessment for your ability to produce high levels of force. Here's my assessment for your ability to absorb high levels of force. And I'm going to treat them as independent qualities until such time as you're good, whatever the hell good is. And then... Mm -hmm. The one assessment should be able to look after both going forward. Um, so I've, I've kind of meandered around your point about when these assessments come in, but the assessments are driven by what my end assessment is going to be. And then as my physical competency improves, I'm always beginning training before I introduced assessment. So I've started my ankling, my pogo, long before I'm ever looking at any assessment of plyometric ability. I started my running mechanics long before I ever take a look at you officially running for the first time. Um, so you need to know what tests you have coming along the track and you need to start beginning to bleed in those elements into your program in advance. Um, a, not to say are you good enough or not, but B, to have that accountability uh, for you that's, that's writing and coaching the program, but also for the athlete that, can you tell me today what the three most important things are for the next four weeks? Because they'll say, can I do extra running? Can I do extra conditioning? Can I do it? I say, of course you can. But what's the three most important things? And if you're coming into the gym tired and your knees sore because you did extra running yesterday, what use is that? <laughs> you know, it's it, it's not. No one ever says, you know, I really struggled to return to play because, or I got I had a second injury because I wasn't fit enough. Uh, there's loads of time to get conditioned. We can be really sensible around that. Um, but if I want to get back running and then I, my knee starts getting sore and I'm yo-yoing up and down and up and down, is that because I didn't set their expectation early enough about the steps along the journey? And then secondly is, did I not hold myself and that athlete, he or she, accountable to hitting those markets? We're going, or look, it's week 12, it's time. Or it's week 14, it's time. Or the surgeons, you know, 
when can I go back running when your knee feels good and my knee feels good well away, away we go um, and, and trying to say that we all have the same goal in mind here the goal is to get you back playing as quickly as possible with no pain in your knee and not do it again so that, that's what we're all looking for and we're all looking to do that as quickly as possible but having your ducks in a row is the best way of doing it as quickly as possible as opposed to just blindly going running and if if whether it's the external pressures from going back to the challenges in league, whether it's the external pressures or whatever else, there is, in working in league team environments, there is a preoccupancy in, in some cases or a lot of cases in get, how quickly I can get them back running and how much running they can do. When for me, the number one thing is how efficiently are they running? Because if, if I look at the mechanics, I know when we go to add the volume to that and when we go to add the conditioning, you are just going to sail off into the sunset without an issue whatsoever. Whereas my knee feels fine until it doesn't feel fine. And then you're backpedaling. And then when your knee sore, you're losing some strength and you're losing some of that plyometric ability. And I'm sliding down the ladder and there's nothing that infuriates a player and a manager more than having to step backwards. They don't mind having to pause at an area for a while just say look at our knees saying just holding this pattern over a little bit but Jesus they hate going backwards and that's where you start to lose input and then you start to lose uh, buy-in so if they've ploughed on ahead even though they've known and you've articulated from day one post-surgery that these are there then you're, you're starting off on a win but if you're trying to move the goalposts all the time because you haven't been very very clear about what the tests you were going to use are and when you're going to use them and how they fit together and I've outlined that long before the process starts, then it's very hard for the coach to come back and say, well, oh, oh, you know, why aren't they doing this or why aren't they that? Or very hard for the player to come back. Not, like, I understand where the player is coming from completely, but you're trying to protect them from themselves because they have all this enthusiasm. You just have to channel it and, and, and make them accountable for making week-to-week progress. And if they're doing what they should be doing and the way they should be doing it and they're not making progress, well, that's on me then. I'm very happy to, to assume responsibility for that. But these are the numbers are the numbers trending in the right direction if they are your Neil tell us it's happy and, and, and away we go from there mm-hmm. so one last question to you and that was around the the eccentric qualities that you mentioned are so important this actually came up with a, a chat with Stu McMillan around the the correlations between um, the success that he sees with his guys and how important uh, eccentric rate of force development actually is with them guys not ability to squat you know, squat numbers, it doesn't really matter. Um, how are you training that quality throughout this this rehab process? And a bit of a, an examples would be absolutely superb. Yeah, um, I suppose going back to Warren Buffett, you know, the quicker you, the, the less you lose, the, the, the quicker you, you get back up to where you want to go. So focusing on rate of force development, but at low loads as early in rehab, as possible is very important for you know for re-establishing that that high neural drive to those tissues um, and to those motor units and so beginning with you know double leg drop and catches double leg to single leg drop and catches um, I'm not a huge fan of, of, of landing off boxes etc because they tend to cheat a lot at it and, and often they can have poor landing technique when they're doing it so um beginning you know taking us through that stream as early as possible so if i can front squat with a decent degree of intensity i'm, I'm able to start loading my quads with a decent degree of intensity I'm, I'm certainly ready to start very very light but fast rate of force development work uh, both concentrically but in particular recently because the concentric comes 
uh, it's the eccentric is what lags behind the eccentric and the plyometric um, and then progressing that on to uh, trap bar catches trap bar catches double trap leg trap bar catches single leg and trying to again as I said much of the focus on, on the eccentric stuff tends to be around landing technique uh, and the motor control of that which is very important but it's very low intensity so it, it's it's technically very challenging and it's quite a complex movement but in terms of the ground reaction forces they're very very low ground reaction forces so having you know can your athlete go from a double to a single leg drop and catch with their body weight on the trap bar and so you get a 90 kilo player to stand up and say i need to catch this on one leg they'll start to look at you very very funny yet we expect that we want them to decelerate laterally and we want them to decelerate going forward absorbing multiples of that force uh, without having any exposure to it so going back to the lateral hip you know why am i not getting stronger well because the intensity is not increasing why am i having these eccentric deficits because i'm either not targeting them or the intensity is not increasing and um, but again because there's always the danger the risk of aggravating the knee a bit like the plyometrics there has to be a, that huge technical foundation established really early in rehab so when we're starting our double leg drop jumps our double leg catches and our double to single leg catches it is for some training stimulus but it's also very much for you know working on the technical competency of it because we're getting you ready not to absorb high loads now but we're getting you ready that when we want to go and absorb high loads we're not having to go back and learn these exercises or learn these patterns or learn these techniques that they've been ingrained for weeks in advance a la what we're talking about from our ankle mechanics for our, our pogos and our plyos we're ingraining these qualities miles in advance so that when it does come to turn the heat on we know that you've a really 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 solid base we know your strength and all has been improving in parallel and we know that you're in a position to really optimize and adapt as quickly as possible for a given stimulus as opposed to i don't have the technical competency I ramp up the weight, my knee gets sore, and down we tumble again. Awesome. Well, I know we are currently in each in self-isolation. However, I'm very conscious well, I, that I, I don't want to... I'm still able to go out and about. I'm not sure about you, but uh, cho cho choosing to isolate. <laughs> yes, choosing to isolate. That's, that's definitely a, a better term. But I'm conscious that I'm just I'm, I'm, I'm taking over your evening. And there is there is so much more we could go into. However... We had planned to, to go over the, the groin stuff, but that's definitely going to come in a, in a part two. And I think we're going to both have a little bit more time in our hands over the coming weeks. So I'm hoping that, will, I'm, I'm hoping that won't be an issue to, to get in. But just to round this up, uh, for firstly, thank you for coming on and, and making time to have a little chat. Where is the best place for people to go? to find out more about this area from, from your work and the, the work of your colleagues and even to, to reach out to you and have a little chat about this. Yeah, um, so my best contact is probably through, through uh, my Twitter page, uh, Enda, under, Enda underscore King. Um, all our contact details are also on the Sports Surgery Clinic uh, website sportsreadyclinic.com uh, or my own page ended-king.com um, has all contact details so all the research papers are up there and um, we try to submit and share as much of it as possible on social media or at least generate awareness about it and um, so they're the best point of contacts and uh, if you drop me a note i will always reply maybe not just immediately but uh, if i don't reply don't be afraid to give me a second job and, and i'll be more than happy to chat to to, to everyone and to anyone well, thank you very much. Yeah, I really appreciate that. And I'm already looking forward to part two, 
which we'll get in the, in the, in the coming week or so, hopefully. But uh, yeah, thanks again. And uh, I will speak to you very, very shortly. You're very good. Thanks a minute. Thanks, mate. Thanks for tuning in to episode 287 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this part one with Ender King. So also big thanks to Hawking Dynamics, to iMeasureU, Black Box Fitness and Kitman Labs for sponsoring this episode today. So as I mentioned at the start, this was going to be a part one, but it was became obvious that there was two distinct um, topics of discussion with this. So we, we, we chopped into two. So next week will be the hip and groin episode. But I hope you enjoyed the, this chat with Ender around ACLs. Personally, I thought it was an incredible episode with some fantastic actionable information. So thank you for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed it. And obviously a huge thanks to Ender for giving up his time. So we've all got a little bit more time in our hands these last few weeks. So if you do want to continue listening to the podcast and listen, listen at your leisure, press subscribe on your chosen podcast player. And every Thursday morning UK time, you will get a podcast delivered by me to you on your phone, a laptop, our tablet. So thanks for tuning in and I will chat to you next week.